Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Drabblecast, episode 251. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So it's HP Lovecraft Tribute Month here on the Drabblecast, the fourth annual to be exact, and that means we spend the entire month honoring the godfather of weird fiction, HP Lovecraft, with original commissioned fiction that somehow pays tribute to significant elements in Lovecraft's work. And just what elements might those be? Well, I think this quote by the man himself sums up the central aspect nicely. Lovecraft once said, The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. But of course, we still do voyage far, because that's what speculative fiction's all about. Lovecraft's characters are always obsessing over some mysterious trinket they find, rummaging through some dusty old manuscript that embarks them on a feverish quest for arcane information. Then the trick is to know exactly when to say when. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, Lovecraft also said, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. So we've got stories lined up for you this month by author S. Boyd Taylor, who you might remember from Drabblecast 146, Teddy Bears, and Tea Parties, as well as an original Lovecraft piece by Samantha Henderson, whose work's been on Drabblecast quite frequently. Episode 193, Scales. Episode 186, Garcane, The Red Bride, Route 9, etc. And then to top it all off, we've got a big story by space opera power duo Elizabeth Bear and Sarah Manette, set in the same Lovecrafty Lewis Carroll universe as previous Drabblecast blockbusters Mongoose and Boojum. So we think you'll enjoy, regardless of if you don't know Lovecraft's work or even particularly care for it. There's a little something for everybody here, don't worry. We always launch the month by producing one of HP's greatest hits, but before we get to that, let's get our iambic pentameter on with some selections from my favorite cosmic horror sonnet cycle, HP Lovecraft's The Fungi from Yugoth. It's a drop of poetry corner, baby. I'm a big fan of these sonnets. They're just freaking awesome. But hey, maybe you're not so much into it, and I totally understand that. You can always skip ahead to the next chapter if you subscribe to our enhanced feed, or fast forward to the main story, which starts at about 12 minutes. Lovecraft wrote most of the fungi from Yagoth cycle between 1929 and 1930, all in all coming to a total of 36 sonnets in the collection. The sonnets seesaw between various themes in much the same way that Lovecraft's short stories do, sometimes simply serving as individual vignettes and other times forming together as story arcs of sorts, but always coming back to that earlier quote, that it was meant we should not voyage far. But screw it, we're doing it anyways. Dear God, what have I done? Oh, the horror. I hope you enjoy. There is in certain ancient things a trace, 
of some dim essence more than form or weight, a tenuous ether indeterminate, yet linked with all the laws of time and space, a faint veiled sign of continuities that outward eyes can never quite descry, of locked dimensions harboring years gone by, and out of reach except for hidden keys. It moves me most when slanting sunbeams glow on old farm buildings set against a hill and paint with life the shapes which linger still from centuries less a dream than this we know. In that strange light I feel I am not far from the fixed mass whose sides the ages are. After year, I heard that faint, far ringing of deep-toned bells on the black midnight wind, peals from no steeple I could ever find, but strange as if across some great void winging. I searched my dreams and memories for a clue, and thought of all the chimes my visions carried of quiet Innsmouth where the white gulls tarried around an ancient spire that once I knew. Always perplexed I heard those far notes falling till one March night the bleak rain splashing cold beckoned me back through gateways of recalling to elder towers where the mad clappers told. They told, but from the sunless tides that pour through sunken valleys on the sea's dead floor. Ten miles from Arkham I had struck the trail that rides the cliff edge over Boynton Beach and hoped that just at sunset I could reach the crest that looks on Innsmouth in the Vale. Far out at sea was a retreating sail, white as hard years of ancient winds could bleach, but evil with some portent beyond speech, so that I did not wave my hand or hail. Sails out of Innsmouth, echoing old renown of long-dead times, but now a too-swift night is closing in, and I have reached the height whence I so often scan the distant town. The spires and roofs are there, but look, the gloom sinks on dark lanes as lightless as the tomb. Beware, St. Toad's cracked chimes, I heard him scream as I plunged into those mad lanes that wind in labyrinths obscure and undefined south of the river where old centuries dream. He was a furtive figure bent and ragged and in a flash had staggered out of sight. So still I burrowed onward in the night toward where more roof lines rose, malign and jagged. No guidebook told of what was lurking here, but now I heard another old man shriek. Beware, St. Toad's cracked chimes and growing weak. I paused when a third graybeard croaked in fear. 
Beware, Saint Toad's cracked chimes. Aghast I fled, till suddenly that black spire loomed ahead. The house was old, with tangled wings outthrown, of which no one could ever half keep track. And in a small room somewhat near the back was an odd window sealed with ancient stone. There, in a dream-plagued childhood quite alone, I used to go where night reigned vague and black, parting the cobwebs with a curious lack of fear and with a wonder each time grown. One later day I brought the masons there to find what view my dim forebears had shunned. But as they pierced the stone, a rush of air burst from the alien voids that yawned beyond. They fled, but I peered through and found unrolled all the wild worlds of which my dreams had told. There were great steps and rocky tablelands, stretching half-limitless and starlit night, with alien campfires shedding feeble light on beasts with tinkling bells in shaggy bands. Far to the south, the plain sloped low and wide to a dark zigzag line of wall that lay like a huge python of some primal day, which endless time had chilled and petrified. I shivered oddly in the cold, thin air and wondered where I was and how I came, when a cloaked form against a campfire's glare rose and approached and called me by my name. Staring at that dead face beneath the hood, I ceased to hope because I understood. And at the last from inner Egypt came the strange dark one to whom the fellas bowed, silent and lean and cryptically proud, and wrapped in fabrics red as sunset flame. Throngs pressed around, frantic for his commands, but leaving could not tell what they had heard, while though the nations spread the awestruck word that wild beasts followed him and licked his hands. Soon from the sea a noxious birth began, forgotten lands with weedy spires of gold. The ground was cleft, and mad auroras rolled down on the quaking citadels of man. Then, crushing what he chanced to mold in play, the idiot chaos blew Earth's dust away. Out in the mindless void, the demon bore me past the bright clusters of dimension space, till neither time nor matter stretched before me, but only chaos without form or place. Here the vast lord of all in darkness muttered, things he had dreamed but could not understand, while near him shapeless bat things flopped and fluttered in idiot vortices that ray streams fanned. They danced insanely to the high, thin whining of a cracked flute clutched in a monstrous paw, whence flow the aimless waves whose chance combining gives each frail cosmos its eternal law. I am his messenger, the demon said, 
as in contempt he struck his master's head. The demon said that he would take me home to the pale, shadowy land I half recalled, as a high place of stair and terrace walled with marble balustrades that sky winds comb, while miles below a maze of dome on dome and tower on tower beside a sea lies sprawled. Once more, he told me, I would stand enthralled on those old heights and hear the far-off foam. All this he promised, and through sunset's gate, he swept me past the lapping lakes of flame, and red gold thrones of gods without a name, who shriek in fear at some impending fate. Then a black gulf with sea sounds in the night. Here was your home, he mocked, when you had sight. I do not know if ever it existed, that lost world floating dimly on time's stream, and yet I see it often, violet misted, and shimmering at the back of some vague dream. There were strange towers and curious lapping rivers, labyrinths of wonder and low vaults of light, and bow-crossed skies of flame like that which quivers wistfully just before a winter's night. Great moors led off to sedgy shores unpeopled, where vast birds wheeled while on a windswept hill. There was a village, ancient and white-steepled, with evening chimes for which I listen still. I do not know what land it is or dare. Ask when or why I was or will be there. While through the nations spread the awestruck word that wild beasts followed him and licked his hands. Man, that line always creeps me out for some reason. So our feature story this week, The Music of Eric Zahn. Lovecraft wrote this story in December 1921. It was first published in National Amateur the following year, March 1922. Ooh, you hear that? Just ignore it, trust me. And whatever you do, don't look out the high garret window. Without further ado, we bring you The Music of Eric Zahn by H.P. Lovecraft. Examined the maps of the city with the greatest care, yet have never again found the Rue d'Assel. These maps have not been modern maps alone, for I know that names change, 
I have, on the contrary, delved deeply into all the antiquities of the place, and have personally explored every region of whatever name which could possibly answer to the street I knew as the Rue d'Assel. But despite all I have done, it remains a humiliating fact that I cannot find the house, the street, or even the locality where, during the last months of my impoverished life as a student of metaphysics at the university, I heard the music of Eric Zahn. That my memory is broken, I do not wonder, for my health, physical, and mental was gravely disturbed throughout the period of my residence in the Rue d'Assel, and I recall that I took none of my few acquaintances there. But that I cannot find the place again is both singular and perplexing, for it was within a half-hour's walk of the university, and was distinguished by peculiarities which could hardly be forgotten by anyone who had been there. I have never met a person who has seen the Rue d'Assel. The Rue d'Assel lay across a dark river bordered by precipitous brick, blear-windowed warehouses and spanned by a ponderous bridge of dark stone. It was always shadowy along that river, as if the smoke of neighboring factories shut out the sun perpetually. The river was also odorous with evil stenches which I have never smelled elsewhere and which may someday help me to find it since I should recognize them at once. Beyond the bridge were narrow cobbled streets with rails, and then came the ascent, at first gradual but incredibly steep as the Rue d'Assel was reached. I have never seen another street as narrow and steep as the Rue d'Assel. It was almost a cliff, closed to all vehicles, consisting in several places of flights of steps and ending at the top in a lofty, ivied wall. Its paving was irregular, sometimes stone slabs, sometimes cobblestones, and sometimes bare earth with struggling greenish-gray vegetation. The houses were tall, peaked-roofed, incredibly old, and crazily leaning backward, forward, and sideways. Occasionally, an opposite pair, both leaning forward, almost met across the street like an arch, and certainly they kept most of the light from the ground below. There were a few overhead bridges from house to house across the street. The inhabitants of that street impressed me peculiarly. At first I thought it was because they were all silent and reticent, but later decided it was because they were all very old. I do not know how I came to live on such a street, but I was not myself when I moved there. I had been living in many poor places, always evicted for want of money, until last I came upon that tottering house in the Rue d'Assel, kept by the paralytic Brandit. It was the third house from the top of the street, and by far the tallest of all of them. My room was on the fifth story, the only inhabited room there, since the house was almost empty. On the night I arrived, I heard strange music from the peaked garret overhead, and the next day asked old Blandet about it. He told me it was an old German viol player, a strange, dumb man who signed his name as Eric Zahn, and who played evenings in a cheap theater orchestra, adding that Zahn's desire to play in the night after his return from the theater was the reason he had chosen this lofty and isolated garret room, whose single gable window was the only point on the street from which one could look over the terminating wall at the declivity and panorama beyond. Thereafter, I heard Zahn every night, and although he kept me awake, I was haunted by the weirdness of his music. Knowing little of the art myself, I was yet certain that none of his harmonies had any relation to music I had heard before, and concluded that he was a composer of highly original genius. 
The longer I listened, the more I was fascinated, until after a week, I resolved to make the old man's acquaintance. One night, as he was returning from his work, I intercepted Zahn in the hallway and told him that I would like to know him and be with him when he played. He was a small, lean, bent person with shabby clothes, blue eyes, grotesque, satyr-like face, and nearly bald head, and at my first words seemed both angered and frightened. My obvious friendliness, however, finally melted him, and he grudgingly motioned to me to follow him up the dark, creaking, and rickety attic stairs. His room, one of the only two in the steeply pitched garret, was on the west side toward the high wall that formed the upper end of the street. Its size was very great, and seemed the greater because of its extraordinary barrenness and neglect. Of furniture there was only a narrow iron bedstead, a dinghy washstand, a small table, a large bookcase, an iron music rack, and three old-fashioned chairs. Sheets of music were piled in disorder around the floor. The walls were of bare boards and had probably never been plastered, whilst the abundance of dust and cobwebs made the place seem more deserted than inhabited. Evidently, Eric Zahn's world of beauty lay in some far cosmos of the imagination. Motioning me to sit down, the dumb man closed the door, turned the large wooden bolt, and lighted a candle to augment the one he had brought with him. He now removed his vial from its moth-eaten covering, and taking it, seated himself in the least comfortable of the chairs. He did not employ the music rack, but, offering no choice and playing from memory, enchanted me for over an hour with strains I had never heard before, strains which must have been of his own devising. To describe their exact nature is impossible for one as unversed in music as I. They were a kind of fugue, with recurrent passages of the most captivating quality, but to me were notable for the absence of any of the weird notes I had overheard from my room below. Those haunting notes I had remembered, and had often hummed and whistled inaccurately to myself, so when the player at length laid down his bow, I asked him if he would render some of them. As I began my request, the wrinkled, satyr-like face lost the bored placidity it had possessed during the playing, and seemed to show the same curious mixture of anger and fright which I had noticed when I first accosted the old man. For a moment, I was inclined to use persuasion, regarding rather lightly the whims of senility, and even tried to awaken my host's weirder mood by whistling a few of the strains to which I had listened the night before. But I did not pursue this course for more than a moment, for when the dumb musician recognized the whistled air, his face grew suddenly distorted with an expression wholly beyond analysis, and his long, cold, bony right hand reached out to stop my mouth and silence the crude imitation. As he did this, he further demonstrated his eccentricity by casting a startled glance toward the lone, curtained window, as if fearful of some intruder's glance, doubly absurd since the garret stood high and accessible above the adjacent roofs, this window being the only point on the steep street, as the concierge had told me, from which one could see over the wall at the summit. The old man's glance brought Blandit's remark to my mind, and with a certain capriciousness I felt to look over the wide and dizzying panorama of moonlit roofs and city lights beyond the hilltop, which all of the dwellers in the Rue d'Assel only this crabbed musician could see. 
I moved toward the window and would have drawn aside the nondescript curtains when, with a frightened rage even greater than before, the dumb lodger was upon me again, this time motioning with his head toward the door as he nervously strove to drag me thither with both hands. Now thoroughly disgusted with my host, I ordered him to release me and told him I would go at once. His clutch relaxed, and as he saw my disgust and offense, his own anger seemed to subside. He tightened his relaxing grip, but this time in a friendly manner, forcing me into a chair, then with an appearance of wistfulness crossing to the littered table, where he wrote many words with a pencil in the labored French of a foreigner. The note which he finally handed me was an appeal for tolerance and forgiveness. Zahn said that he was old, lonely, and afflicted with strange fears and nervous disorders connected with his music, and with other things. He had enjoyed my listening to his music, and wished I would come again and not mind his eccentricities, but he could not play to another his weird harmonies, and could not bear hearing them from another, nor could he bear having anything in his room touched by another. He had not known until our hallway conversation that I could overhear his playing in my room, and now asked me if I would arrange with Blandit to take a lower room where I could not hear him in the night. He would, he wrote, defray the difference in rent. As I sat deciphering the execrable French, I felt more lenient toward the old man. He was a victim of physical and nervous suffering, as was I, and my metaphysical studies had taught me kindness. In the silence there came a slight sound from the window. The shutter must have rattled in the night wind, and for some reason I startled almost as violently as did Eric's on. So when I had finished reading, I shook my host by the hand and departed as a friend. The next day, Blandit gave me a more expensive room on the third floor between the apartments of an aged moneylender and the room of a respectable upholsterer. There was no one on the fourth floor. It was not long before I found that Zahn's eagerness for my company was not as great as it had seemed while he was persuading me to move down from the fifth story. He did not ask me to call on him, and when I did call, he appeared uneasy and played listlessly. This was always at night. In the day, he slept and would admit no one. My liking for him did not grow, though the attic room and the weird music seemed to hold an odd fascination for me. I had a curious desire to look out of that window, over the wall, and down the unseen slope at the glittering roofs and spires which must lie outspread there. Once I went up to the garret during theater hours when Zahn was away, but the door was locked. What I did succeed in doing was to overhear the nocturnal playing of the dumb old man. At first I would tiptoe up to the old fifth floor when I grew bold enough to climb the last creaking staircase to the peaked garret. There, in the narrowed hall, outside the bolted door with the covered keyhole, I often heard sounds which filled me with an indefinable dread, the dread of vague wonder and brooding mystery. It was not that the sounds were hideous, for they were not, but that they held vibrations suggesting nothing on this globe of earth, and that at certain intervals they assumed a symphonic quality that I could hardly conceive as produced by one player. Certainly Eric Zahn was a genius of wild power. As the weeks passed, the playing grew wilder, whilst the old musician acquired an increasing haggardness and furtiveness pitiful to behold. 
He now refused to admit me at any time, and shunned me whenever we met on the stairs. Then, one night, as I listened at the door, I heard the shrieking vial swell into a chaotic babble of sound, a pandemonium which would have led me to doubt my own shaking sanity had there not come from behind that barred portal, a piteous proof that the horror was real, the awful, inarticulate cry which only a mute can utter, and which rises only in moments of the most terrible fear or anguish. I knocked repeatedly at the door, but received no response. Afterward I waited in the black hallway, shivering with cold and fear, till I heard the poor musician's feeble effort to rise from the floor by the aid of a chair. Believing him just conscious after a fainting fit, I renewed my rapping, at the same time calling out my name reassuringly. I heard Zahn stumble to the window and close both shutter and sash, then stumble to the door, which he falteringly unfastened to admit me. This time his delight at having me present was real, for his distorted face gleamed with relief, while he clutched at my coat as a child clutches at its mother's skirts. Shaking pathetically, the old man forced me into a chair whilst he sank into another, beside which his vial and bow lay carelessly on the floor. He sat for some time, inactive, nodding oddly, but having a paradoxical suggestion of intense and frightened listening. Subsequently, he seemed to be satisfied, and crossing to a chair by the table, wrote a brief note, handed it to me, and returned to the table where he began to write rapidly and incessantly. The note implored me in the name of mercy, and for the sake of my own curiosity, to wait where I was while he prepared a full account in German of all the marvels and terrors which beset him. I waited, and the dumb man's pencil flew. It was perhaps an hour later, while I still waited, and while the old musician's feverishly written sheets still continued to pile up, that I saw Zahn start as if from some hint of a horrible shock. Unmistakably, he was looking at the curtained window and listening shudderingly. Then I half fancied I heard a sound myself, though it was not a horrible sound, but rather an exquisitely low and infinitely distant musical note, suggesting a player in one of the neighboring houses or in some abode beyond the lofty wall over which I had never been able to look. Upon Zahn the effect was terrible, for, dropping his pencil, suddenly he rose, seized his vial, and commenced to rend the night with the wildest playing I had ever heard from his bow, save when listening at the barred door. It would be useless to describe the playing of Eric Zahn on that dreadful night. It was more horrible than anything I had overheard, because I could now see the expression of his face, and could realize that this time the motive was stark fear. He was trying to make a noise, to ward something off or drown something out, what I could not imagine, awesome though I felt it must be. The playing grew fantastic, Danis and hysterical, yet kept to the last the qualities of supreme genius which I knew this strange old man possessed. I recognized the air, it was a wild Hungarian dance popular in the theaters, and I reflected for a moment that this was the first time I had ever heard Zahn play the work of another composer. 
Louder and louder, wilder and wilder mounted the shrieking and whining of that desperate vial. The player was dripping with an uncanny perspiration and twisted like a monkey, always looking frantically at the curtained window. In his frenzied strains, I could almost see shadowy satyrs and bacchanals dancing and whirling insanely through the seething abysses of clouds and smoke. And then I thought I heard a shriller, steadier note that was not from the vial, a calm, deliberate, purposeful, mocking note from far away in the west. At this juncture, the shutter began to rattle in a howling night wind which had sprung up outside as if in answer to the mad playing within. Zahn's screaming vial now outdid itself, emitting sounds I had never thought a vial could admit. The shutter rattled more loudly, unfastened, and commenced slamming against the window. Then the glass broke shiveringly under the persistent impacts, and the chill wind rushed in, making the candles sputter and rustling the sheets of paper on the table where Zahn had begun to write out his horrible secret. I looked at Zahn and saw that he was past conscious observation. His blue eyes were bulging, glassy and sightless, and the frantic playing had become a blind, mechanical, unrecognizable orgy that no pen could ever suggest. A sudden gust, stronger than the others, caught up the manuscript and bore it toward the window. I followed the flying sheets in desperation, but they were gone before I reached the demolished panes. Then I remembered my old wish to gaze from this window, the only window in the Rue d'Assale from which one might see the slope beyond the wall and the city outspread beneath. It was very dark, but the city's lights always burned, and I expected to see them there amidst the rain and wind. Yet, when I looked from that highest of all gable windows, looked while the candles sputtered and the insane vial howled with the night wind, I saw no city spread below, and no friendly lights gleamed from remembered streets, but only the blackness of space illimitable, unimagined space, alive with motion and music, and having no semblance of anything on earth. And as I stood there looking in terror, the wind blew out both the candles in that ancient peaked garret, leaving me in savage and impenetrable darkness with chaos and pandemonium before me, and the demon madness of that night-baying vial behind me. I staggered back in the dark, without the means of striking a light, crashing against the table, overturning a chair, and finally groping my way to the place where the blackness screamed with shocking music. To save myself and Eric Zahn, I could at least try, whatever the powers opposed to me. Once I thought some chilling thing brushed me, and I screamed, but my scream could not be heard above that hideous vial. Suddenly, out of the blackness, the madly sawing bow struck me, and I knew I was close to the player. I felt a head, touched the back of Zahn's chair, and then found and shook his shoulder in an effort to bring him to his senses. He did not respond, and still the vial shrieked on without slackening. I moved my hand to his head, whose mechanical nodding I was able to stop, and shouted in his ear that we must both flee from the unknown things of the night. But he neither answered me nor abated the frenzy of his unutterable music, while all through the garret strange currents of wind seemed to dance in the darkness and babble. 
When my hand touched his ear, I shuddered, though I knew not why, knew not why, till I felt the still face, the ice-cold, stiffened, unbreathing face whose glassy eyes bulged uselessly into the void. And then, by some miracle, finding the door and the large wooden bolt, I plunged wildly away from that glassy-eyed thing in the dark, and from the ghoulish howling of that accursed vile, whose fury increased even as I plunged. Leaping, floating, flying down those endless stairs through the dark house, racing mindlessly out into the narrow, steep, and ancient street of steps and tottering houses, clattering down steps and over cobbles to the lower streets, panting across the great dark bridge to the broader, healthier streets, all these are terrible impressions that linger with me. And I recall that there was no wind, and that the moon was out, and that all the lights of the city twinkled. Despite my most careful searches and investigations, I have never since been able to find the Rue des But I am not wholly sorry, either for this or for the loss in undreamable abysses of the closely written sheets which alone could have explained the music of Ericsson. Questo mare così nero non ha luci sulle onde, sono occhi chiusi freddi, sono lacrime profonde e ti vedo dolce nana vostra stretta al sonno di bambina. our story. The music you're hearing is a piece called Albanese by modern-day viola de gamba player Paolo Pandolfo. His wife Andrea is singing. The lyrics, this sea so black has no lights on the waves. They are closed cold eyes. They are profound tears. Paolo's last CD, Travel Notes, is just great. All modern compositions for viola de gamba. All eerie, all beautiful. We'll link to it in our show notes. Musical sounds which filled me with an indefinable dread. The dread of vague wonder and brooding mystery. Howard Phillips on Wilson Phillips. No one can change your life except for you. Don't ever let anyone step all over you. Fundamental to our sanity and well-being, it seems, is the base assumption that a thing is a thing. Facts and evidence matter. The center is the center, the left is the left, the right is the right. Up's the opposite of down. The ground is safe to walk on most of the time. There's never enough cowbell, and Wilson Phillips is one of the absolute worst bands ever. The fear our nosy neighbor narrator experiences in the story is fear of the unknown, straight up and to a chilling degree. When he looks through the God's eye view of that high garret window, he discovers that there is no city. There are no ontological truths. A thing is not a thing. He doesn't gain perspective at all. He loses it. He loses his origin to the extent that he quite literally can't ever again find the street he once called home. What's the first thing you usually look for on a helicopter ride or from the top of a high building in your city? If you can see your house, right? Let's hope you always find it. 
Here was your home when you had sight. Indeed. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, I'm sure you realize that the Drabblecast runs entirely off the support of listeners such as yourself, and even though this week's story was in the public domain and cost us nothing but extraordinary amounts of time to produce, everything else you hear this month on the show will have cost us a pretty penny. Hit up Drabblecast.org. We've got support options at the top. You can make a one-time donation of any amount or sign up for a $5 or $10 a month automatic subscription. We love you hard for it. All right, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, Troy St. James, with this one here. The gypsy examined the cards she dealt and foretold. You'll come into a large sum of money. Indeed, it was a full house. Nice. In the game of poker, you have to play the hand you're dealt. Unless it's a literal hand, then it's a redeal. Exactly 100 characters. Give it a shot and post yours in the TwitFix section of our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. You might be next week's winner. Follow us on Twitter at the Drabblecast. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Bill Hallier. Check out more of Bill's awesome work at roughbeasts.com. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, Managing Editor, our Submissions Editor, Nathan Lee, Editor-at-Large, Matthew Bay, our Art Director, Bo Kyer, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, Beware, Saint Toad's Cracked Chimes! His solid flesh had never been away, for each dawn found him in his usual place. But every night his spirit loved to race through gulfs and worlds remote from common day. He had seen Nyadath, yet retained his mind, and come back safely from the Goric zone, when one still night across curved space was thrown, that beckoning piping from the voids behind. He walked that morning as an older man, and nothing since has looked the same to him. Objects around float nebulous and dim, false phantom trifles of some vaster plan. His folk and friends are now an alien throng, to which he struggles vainly to belong. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. 
The uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.